I had a thing in my hand. It was like a glass, you know, uh, wick or whatever, like Febreze wick. And I was saying I'm, I'm going to hurt myself because I'm trying to I'm trying to get out of here. This is Austin Hunter. He's 15. So I'm making up like all kinds of stupid, stupid scenarios. So I was like pretending I'm suicidal, getting evaluated and stuff. And so I ran into my room and like hid under my bed. But the there's like plywood that comes up and there's like two by fours across to hold that plywood up. And then your mattress goes on it. So I was under there and then they grabbed my arm. He put it on a two by four and started stomping on it. This altercation happened with a staff member at Lakeside Academy, a private reform school known as a place to help kids with severe behavioral issues. I got up and I grabbed the sheet, wrapped it around my neck, saying I'm going to kill myself. So he said, do you need help with that? And I couldn't even answer. So he started pulling on it and I'm all going down. And then, and then I pushed him and then he let go. I wrapped it real quick. And he started like talking trash and stuff. So I, I punched him. And then when he fell, got up and then choked, like choked, colded me and then slammed me to the ground and... I had a hard time breathing, so I kept struggling, moving around. I like can't breathe. He's like, "Stop resisting!" I'm like, "I'm not gonna stop resisting when I can't breathe." But eventually, I I moved. I put my hand like right under my neck, in between his hands, so I could breathe. And then he he got up, and I was laying there like half in a ball, and in the corner. And he's like, "Get up!" Because he started tearing apart my room. And then he he told me to get up, and he started kicking me because I wasn't getting up. Like, kicked me twice, and then I got up, and then they left, and then I had to clean up my room. There's often been a system that's been hidden from public view. You would yell, you can't breathe. You get a lot of self-harm in there. Due process for juveniles across the country varies depending upon where you are. In this episode, we explore the road to juvenile incarceration. What happens after a kid is arrested and how is their destination decided? The journey is anything but simple. Different laws, judges, and protocols essentially add up to more than 50 different justice systems and endless possibilities for routes to facilities. I'm Anthony Wallace, and this is Kids Imprisoned. Prison for kids. Games of kids. Kids, man. A lot of them kids never found. I still have nightmares about like being sent back there. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any better. Some of those kids get locked up. So I'm joined by News 21 reporter Jill Ryan, who spent a lot of time looking into the complicated processes that can lead kids to incarceration and the history of the juvenile justice system. Hi, Anthony. So, Jill, is Austin's experience common? So Austin's story doesn't represent what all juveniles are going through. It shows what a kid could go through. Uh, To help better understand the system, I spoke with the co-authors of a nearly 400-page textbook on juvenile justice. My name is uh, Preston Elrod, and uh, I'm Professor Emeritus uh, at School of Justice Studies, Eastern Kentucky University. 
Elrod's co-author is R. Scott Ryder, a practicing attorney in Michigan for more than 45 years. During that time, I met Preston Elrod, and he and I collaborated, have collaborated on five editions of our textbook. But our initial collaboration began when we both worked in Kalamazoo County. I was the chief referee. A referee is a person who holds juvenile court hearings, but is not a judge. And he was the chief probation officer. I talked with them individually and asked what I thought would be a simple question. How would you answer if someone were to ask you, hey, what does a juvenile go through in the juvenile justice system? Unfortunately, my honest response is, in many jurisdictions, I don't know. When we studied this issue uh, in our book, we found tremendous differences in the level of due process protections for juveniles from state to state. This is Ryder speaking. There are some states that don't necessarily appoint juveniles attorneys at uh, the intake process or at the initial hearings. So I really share concerns about the fact that due process for juveniles across the country varies depending upon where you are. Okay, so on the first episode, Katie and I compared the juvenile justice system to a game Plinko from The Price is Right, where you drop a disc in the the top of the board and it sort of bounces around almost randomly to some prize or some outcome at the bottom. And it seems like Elrod and Ryder are really kind of illuminating why this is the case. Yeah, and Elrod elaborates. Every state, the District of Columbia, territories of the U.S., all have their individual systems with their individual laws and and different ways of dealing with these things. And juvenile justice, I think, has been potentially problematic because it's often been a system that's been hidden from public view, that people don't really know what's going on with it because, you know, they're seeing just very limited things being written about this system from people who are poking around trying to understand it. Juvenile justice has many entrances, exits, and ways to transfer into the adult criminal justice system. To understand why multiple avenues were built, Ryder says to look at the past, specifically the year 1899. The first juvenile court came about in Chicago in 1899, as you say, and it was initiated by a group of women called the Child Savers. And they were appalled at the conditions that they found poor children in in Chicago. One of the group's several initiatives was to reform penal code when it came to juveniles. Kids that got in trouble with the law ended up in adult court because that's all that existed. On the other hand, and I know this sounds cynical, but it's true. On the other hand, these child savers were women that were at the top of the social pyramid, and they didn't want their status disrupted by revolutionary masses of people. And so there was a, a, a dual message here in the creation of the juvenile court. What Ryder suggests is that despite their wish to save kids from the adult system, they thought there were some kids too dangerous for the newly invented juvenile justice system. Many of the juvenile courts that were instituted from 1899 up until the end of World War II, many of those uh, statutes had provisions in them for dealing with juveniles that were considered to be dangerous and waiving them 
to adult court. The vast majority of early statutes only had waiver as an alternative. And the thing that distinguished waiver was it was a judicial decision. In other words, only a judge could make the decision to waive a juvenile to adult court. And all of the statutes had an age limit in them. What you should take note of is two things. First, the juvenile justice system was built with the idea of transferring kids to adult court in certain cases. The second thing is, at the time, it was the judge's decision to move a juvenile to the adult system. This is important because in the 1980s and 90s, that all changed. Here's Elrod. We were going through this get tough movement in uh, uh, not only in, in juvenile justice, but in the adult justice system, where we were trying to put more police on the streets. We were trying to arrest more offenders. We were trying to prosecute more offenders. We were trying to incarcerate more uh, more people. And that was not only happening within the adult system, but this was happening in the the juvenile system. And, and those were parts of the, the wars on crime, the wars on drugs, uh, Clinton's efforts uh, uh, to get tougher on crime. He promised he was going to put 100,000 more police officers on the street. The frightening story of recent years, teenagers as young as 13 committing murders. Under the You're bill- old enough to know the difference between right and wrong. And if you know right from wrong and you choose wrong, there will be consequences. One reason younger people are committing more crimes may be because words getting out, the system will be easy on them. Besides trying violent juveniles as adults, the bill also prods the states to impose punishment on juveniles every time they break the law. Many Democrats criticize the bill because it contains no money for prevention or intervention. We can create all the jobs in the world, all the opportunity in the world, but if we go into the 21st century with too many children killing children, this country will not be what it ought to be. You know, you would hear people saying stuff like, you know, if they, they do the crime, they should do the time. You know, it doesn't matter if it's a young person that's pointing the gun at you. That's that's serious cr- criminal behavior, and we should treat those people very, very seriously. And then a little bit later, changes in things like blended sentencing laws that gave, uh, you know, juvenile courts or adult courts a flexibility in terms of how they could sentence youngsters. So these different avenues opened up for children to go to adult court, avenues that are hard to keep track of because everything is so different from county to county, state to state. Right. So it seems like Elrod is really just driving home the fact that this system doesn't quite look the same in any two places. It's almost like there's a completely different Plinko board depending on where you live. Exactly. And, and that's just talking about kids who are going into the adult system. And don't get me wrong, there are tremendous amounts of discretion at each step of the process. Imagine that same game of Plinko. Uh, you let go of the disc, but each time that it hits a wooden post, that's another player deciding whether the disc goes left or right. Juvenile justice is not a random game of chance. It's usually a systematic buildup of discretionary choices made by judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys. And all of those possible combinations and outcomes, Elrod says they stem from four major phases. The arrest, the intake phase, the adjudication phase, disposition phase, and then of course there's the, the correctional responses that are that are used as a, as a result of the disposition and whatever the court feels needs to happen. 
This is a lot of insider talk, so let me translate some of these terms. In juvenile justice, it's not called a trial and a sentencing hearing. It's called an adjudication and disposition. But back to the four phases. Not every juvenile will go through these four stages. Some never make it to trial because of lack of evidence or prosecutorial discretion. Elrod used to be an intake officer. One of his jobs was to help decide if a case would be diverted or sent to court. I'll give you an example. I can remember a case. This kid uh, comes into my office with his, with his mom, and he'd been arrested by the police for throwing a snowball at a school bus. Wait, okay, so Elrod is deciding the fate of a kid who's just thrown a snowball? Yes. Uh, the system has its fair share of serious crimes committed by kids, but multiple sources have told our team that the juvenile system deals with a lot of misdemeanor cases and cases like this snowball. Um, also, Elrod says the most common punishment is probation as opposed to incarceration. But right now, with this snowball incident, it's Elrod's decision that determines if this kid goes to court. Okay, he threw a snowball at a school bus. He got arrested for that. Now he's at juvenile court. I got to decide what to what to do about this case. You know, does this does this does this kid need to go before the juvenile court judge and you know be placed on probation or you know do they need to go? Do they need to be waived to the adult court? Well, no, of course not. Right? I mean, what would you do with that? <laughs> I mean, what would you do with a case like that? I know this scenario seems like a no-brainer, and Elrod's discretion meant the child was discharged from the system. But discretion can also work against some kids. Take the recent case of a 15-year-old girl in Michigan named only Grace for privacy concerns. Uh, ProPublica and the New York Times reported she was put on probation in November after pulling her mom's hair and biting her finger. Police have been called to that residence several times before for other confrontations. The 15-year-old had had a history of behavioral issues, and in May, Grace had violated her probation terms after not completing her online coursework. She was incarcerated for that. And in July, her lawyers and also the prosecutor requested a hearing that she get early release. Her mom, too, wanted her home. But the discretion remained with the judge, and that judge decided to not release her, calling her a threat to her mom and the community, but holding her on the charge of violating probation by not completing her homework. This recent decision was met with protests and many people saying that she would have been released had she had been white. Now, whether or not racial bias is proven in this case, both Elrod and Ryder pointed out that bias can create a lot of problems when mixed with a discretionary system. In order to be treated fairly, you, you actually have to, the people that are making the decisions have to be, you know, un unbiased. So we need an unbiased decision maker. Now, this could be an issue because that doesn't always happen. Some people are not as good about checking their biases at the door when they when they put on the black robe or when they become the probation officer, the police officer, or, or whatever. And Ryder says courts should reflect the community values that are present in the community. However, given the vast size of our country and the multiple number of courts that deal with juvenile delinquents, you're going to get a tremendous variance in community values. In addition, race has all, or ethnic background, has always played a part in uh, juvenile justice. Uh, unfortunately, minorities are incarcerated at far greater rates than uh, non-minorities, and males are incarcerated at far greater rates than females. 
So according to Ryder, bias is alive and well in placement, and there are so many different options, all depending on the crime, age of the child, the lawyer they had, and the judge in the hearing. Okay, so it seems like based on what Elrod and Ryder say, you know, one, th- one kind of deeper way to think about this Plinko example is that it's like Plinko, but it's rigged. And thinking about the case with the snowball and this girl in Michigan, it's pretty interesting that it seems like a pretty innocuous or kind of commonplace bit of misbehavior can land you in this system and in this game of Planko that can really lead to anywhere. I mean, just throw a snowball or get in a fight with your mom, not do your homework in the right place of the country. And all of a sudden, your fate is in the hands of these people. Exactly. And I want to get back to Austin's story, the kid you heard from the beginning of the episode, because it really highlights that uniqueness that each juvenile can go through in the system. Our colleague Franco Latona looked into it. Hey, Anthony, how are you? Hey, Franco. So so Jill told us a little bit about the history of the juvenile justice system and just more about why it is so inconsistent, why it's so different from place to place and from case to case. And so I know that you spent a lot of time looking into the case of this kid that we heard from at the beginning of the episode, Austin. So what can you tell us about how he ended up in this facility being beaten by one of its employees? Yeah, so nothing about this case could be considered cookie cutter. Uh, In a system that's built largely on discretion, complex cases like his can face a system breakdown. I spoke with Austin, so he's 15 years old, and his mother, Angela. Angela adopted Austin when he was three years old. Now, he was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, which occurs when a mother drinks during her pregnancy. So... Unfortunately, because of that, Austin was born with an IQ of about 78, which is considered low. Angela says Austin has struggled with behavioral health issues throughout his life. And it all came to a head when he was just 12 years old. I was watching a little girl and um, my daughter was here my, um, and, um, and my other daughter. And um, he went into the garage and got the weed whacker and he turned it on. And he went after the little kids. The other sister intervened to protect the two children, and the weed whacker cut into her shoulder. The police were called, and Austin was ultimately pulled from his home. Is she okay today? Angela says she was wearing a leather jacket at the time, so she suffered only minor injuries. And she said the two younger girls were not hurt at all. And so he was pulled from his home as a result of this incident. Where was he placed? So they put Austin into a juvenile detention center briefly while the courts decided what to do with him. He has a lower IQ. So he's, his IQ is like 78 and he has mental health issues. So he, and he is, they did a rule 20 on him. A competency test. And they found him incompetent. So he shouldn't have been sitting that long at juvenile detention. Okay. So I did yeah, I didn't realize that you needed to take any kind of competency test in order to get into detention. Yeah, well, not so much to get into detention. It's a competency test to see whether or not a person was capable of reasoning through their crime. And so in Austin's case, since he failed the competency test, Angela says he was placed at a residential treatment facility 
for kids with behavioral health issues and not a juvenile detention center. However, Austin was removed from the residential treatment home after attacking staff. He, he kicked three of their kneecaps out. They were trying to put him in restraints and put him in a hold and he kicked their kneecaps out and then they didn't want it back. Austin then moved through two different juvenile detention facilities, which Angela says was really difficult on him. He did a lot of self-harm in there. Um, he had a suicide attempt in there. They would keep him in his room a lot, and because Austin had already experienced, you know, abuse and neglect at a, a young age. Austin was abused as an infant before Angela and her husband adopted him. He had heard when he hears commotion and different things and he's locked in his room, that's very upsetting to him. It almost triggers a PTSD response to him, and then that's when he was self-harming because he didn't know what was going on out there. And uh, I kept asking when he was in juvenile detention, I said, can we please have a therapist come in and talk to him or, you know, and by the time I finally got that worked out that he should have one and I was fighting for that with his mental health worker and with the juvenile detention himself, then they had finally got him moved to Lakeside. So let's pick up where we left off in the beginning of the episode. I got up and I grabbed the sheet, wrapped it around my neck saying, I'm gonna kill myself. So he said, do you need help with that? That's Lakeside Academy, a boys' reform school in Michigan that takes kids with severe behavioral issues. Austin's caseworker there assured Angela that someone from the county would check on him monthly. But Angela says that never happened. Ryder, the lawyer mentioned earlier in this episode, says that private centers have always been controversial. The issue of the privatization of corrections has been nationwide and probably started occurring in the late 80s and then the 1990s. Historically speaking, back in the the mid-19th century, you know, most all corrections were private. And what people found was that they were horrible and that that was a service that they wanted the government to run uh, because of issues of oversight. And then, you know, as uh, everything new is everything old, now we've gone full circle and we're heading back toward privatization. And there's a concern that I have about accountability. What kind of oversight are there at these kind of private facilities like Lakeside? Well, it varies widely is the short answer to that question. It's usually determined through the contract. So Lakeside Academy is a nonprofit organization. They have a contract with the state of Michigan, the Department of Health and Human Services, and they're, they are supposed to check on them every so often. So it could be once a quarter, you know, once every few months, once a year. But what we found through our reporting is that many of these places are not exactly transparent. So I spoke with Allison Clements of the National Juvenile Justice Network to talk about the differences between state-run and privately-run facilities. The difference is the accountability process. When heinous acts, like a child's death, happen in state-run facilities... There's usually a public investigation. It's usually released immediately. Legislators and governors are immediately um, involved. They usually immediately take action. Wow, so private centers are almost shielded from these kinds of thorough automatic investigations that these really, like you said, these really tragic events automatically trigger in a public facility. That kind of thing just doesn't necessarily happen in the private facilities. Yeah, well, 
Sometimes investigations do happen, but nothing is done as a result. So in the case of Lakeside Academy, the Department of Health and Human Services, the DHHS, investigated them 20 times. They filed 20 special investigative reports, and they substantiated 18 claims of misconduct. And they mandated that Lakeside write a corrective action plan for each of the 18 substantiated cases. Now, the investigations are public. Those are listed on their website. But the corrective action plans, those are private because it's a private company that's doing. So are private centers really held accountable in any way? Well, they are. They do hold a license with the state, and so their license can be suspended or revoked. But what we're seeing is that oftentimes, really, the cases of abuse have to pile up significantly before the state takes really substantial action. And in this case at Lakeside, it took the death of a child before they actually started the legal process of suspending Lakeside's license. Wait, what happened there? Austin says he endured and witnessed all kinds of abuse at Lakeside Academy, not including the incident mentioned earlier. Restraints were a part of daily life there. Dirty restraints. That's the term Austin says the kids coined to refer to those restraints intended to cause extreme pain. But they would do dirty restraints like grind our our nuts or like grind our thighs and chest with their elbows and stuff. First, it should be noted that these restraints are not sanctioned by Lakeside Academy or the state of Michigan. But nonetheless, they were used frequently at Lakeside, according to Austin. And uh, it culminated on April 30th of this year. During lunch in the cafeteria at Lakeside, Austin's friend and former roommate Cornelius Frederick was eating lunch at a table alone. What happens next was all caught on camera, and I've watched it a number of times. It is pretty graphic. Cornelius throws the bread crust from his sandwich at a boy sitting across from him at the next table. Two staff get up and come over and stand over him. A few minutes pass, he throws a sandwich. This time, the staff named Michael Mosley violently pushes Frederick off his seat onto the floor. And within minutes, seven grown men are piled on top of him, restraining every limb of his body. He was yelling, he can't breathe. I know that because all the kids that were there heard him. Now you can see in the surveillance video that many people, including the kids in the cafeteria, they actually remain seated, just continuing their lunch like it's a normal day. No one intervenes. I should actually like, jumped in there Try helping him. Um, you know what else? It, it's, it was the adult's responsibility to do the right thing. But he's my friend. and I, I want to look out for my friend. By the time staff finally get off of Cornelius, he's a limp body on the floor. One day later, he died. Now, Cornelius Frederick, who was black, his his death remained relatively quiet until the George Floyd incident. Because of their similar last words, I can't breathe, Cornelius's death got national attention. CNN wrote a story on it, the New York Times. And on June 24th, nearly two months after the incident, three staff involved in the restraint were charged with involuntary manslaughter. 
in your opinion, based on your reporting, do you think it's possible that there have been more instances like this at Lakeside and elsewhere in private facilities across the country that just haven't gotten the same kind of public attention that Cornelius's death did? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. So I, through my reporting, we did not discover any more deaths of children recently. But just given the lack of oversight, given how many of these organizations um, operate out of the view of the public and the state, um, it's it's not unlikely. Wow. Okay. So you said that Lakeside closed following this incident. Where is Austin now? So Austin, after he and all of the other kids were removed from Lakeside following the suspension of their license, and um, he was briefly brought back to a relative's home where he was staying. That's when we were able to interview him. Now he's back in juvenile detention. Well, so he was determined at one point that he shouldn't go to detention because of this competency test, but yet again... That's where he is. Yeah, and it's it's all about placements. I mean, states really struggle with placing kids because the fact of the matter is there's just more kids than there are facilities. There's more mm-hmm. kids than there are residential homes. If you or someone you know is in need of help, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK or 8255 or text 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor right away. This episode was produced by Jill Ryan. Assistant producer for this episode was Franco Latona. News 21 reporters Dahlia Johnson, Gretchen Lasso, Ike Simonis, Josh Fox, Kayla Hugh-Shaw, and Sorrell Grow also contributed to this episode. Kids in Prison is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, an investigative journalism program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona. This episode was also assistant produced, mixed, and scored by me, Anthony Wallace on the next episode of Kids Imprisoned. I was made to sleep on a totally separate unit in a locked room, which everyone sleeps in a locked room, but it just didn't make sense to me that, that like if every door in a unit locks and everyone sleeps by themselves, why can't I sleep on the same floor in the same unit as the other girls? They're basically saying that they think that I have like the strength to like open up the door and then like sexually abuse someone, which I would never do, obviously. And I don't have a history of that. They just like completely othered me and just made me feel like a nobody. Like they just othered me so bad.